Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. Cody Thorpe reporting back in here from the hilltop. Just here to give uh, affirmation to Dustin Sleeper for coming around and seeing second phase on the weekends and giving everybody encouragement and lifting our spirits up and being there for us and taking us out to hedges of highways and letting us give back to the community also. Thanks a lot, Dustin. You've been real good around here, buddy. Bye. Hey, this is Greg Schaefer. Just a reminder that this Saturday, July 18th, is Family Day for Second Phase. It's an awesome time for you to get together with your loved ones to reunite, restore, and continue in restoration. It's amazing to see how God works. Pray for great weather. Hope to see you all there with your families. Thank you, Jesus.
As we look into today's reading of the New Testament, we'll see that the Jews were proud to be called children of Abraham. Paul used Abraham as a good example of someone who was saved by faith. By emphasizing faith, Paul was not saying God's laws are unimportant, no, but that it's impossible to be saved simply by obeying them. Our self-reliance is futile. All we can do is cast ourselves on God's mercy and grace. We'll learn that some people, when they learn that we are saved by God through faith, start to worry, do I have enough faith? They wonder, is my faith strong enough to save me? These people miss the point. It is Jesus Christ who saves us, not our feelings or actions. The work is already done, and He is strong enough to save us no matter how weak our faith is. Jesus offers us salvation as a gift because He loves us, not because we have earned it through our powerful faith. What then is the role of faith? Well, faith is believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, reaching out to accept His wonderful gift of salvation. Faith is effective, whether it's great or small, because God loves us. And then finally, we'll learn as we read uh, today's passage that circumcision was an outward sign and seal for the Jews that they were a people special to God. Circumcision of all Jewish boys set the Jewish people apart from the nations who worshipped other gods. Thus, it was a very important ceremony. Ceremonies and rituals serve as reminders of our faith. They instruct new and younger believers, but we should not think they give us any special merit before God. They are outward signs and seals that demonstrate belief and trust. The focus of our faith should be on Christ and His saving actions, not on our own actions. And now with that, let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. July 17th, the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith, and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith, but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
And now, just before we begin our reading in the book of Psalms, let's review what we'll be reading about. Sometimes all we need to do is talk over a problem with a friend to help put it in perspective. Now, in this psalm we're about to read, the phrase, How long, occurs four times in the first two verses, indicating the depth of David's distress. David expressed his feelings to God and found strength. By the end of his prayer, he was able to express hope and trust in God. We'll see that David frequently claimed that God was slow to act on his behalf. We often feel this same impatience, don't we? It seems that evil and suffering go unchecked, and we wonder when God is going to stop them. When you feel impatient, remember David's steadfast faith in God's unfailing mercy. And we'll see that David was a faithful man, but he felt the pressure of his problems as much as anyone. His response to pressure, however, stands in stark contrast to that of the people described over in Psalm 11, who wanted to give up. Sometimes we feel that way too, don't we? Just want to give up. Well, David held on to his faith. In times of despair, it's much harder to hold on than to give up. But if you give up on God, you give in to a life of despair. And now from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes, or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, We have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Proverbs 19, verses 15 and 16. Lazy people sleep soundly, but idleness leaves them hungry. Keep the commandments and keep your life. Despising them leads to death. Thank you, Wes. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, good. It's great to be with you. As uh, Wes said, I'm the preaching pastor at the Tri-Village Congregation, and uh, we are deeply thankful for you here. We love Veritas West. We pray for you often, and we are really thankful for you, and it's, uh, it's a joy of, of mine to get to be here with you. And so uh, this, mo- this evening, I should say I preached this morning, so I might get that confused a little bit, but this evening, we're going to be digging into Acts once again. After taking a couple months off this summer, we're going to be diving back in to Acts chapter 10. And now if you were with us throughout this series, throughout the spring, and, or maybe if you've forgotten, what we did is we traced through the first third of the book of Acts so far. So essentially from chapter 1 where Jesus comes and he commissions his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to take his gospel to every nation under heaven. And then we trace the growth of this early church as it spread throughout Jerusalem, as persecution set in, as they were chased into areas of Samaria and Judea, and as they they grew and grew and experienced favor, yet at the same time were were persecuted and chased out of town. And really we ended that, that first third of the book of Acts a couple months ago, we ended it at Acts chapter 9, verse 31, where we actually saw the conversion of Saul, who would become Paul. 
And we saw God pursue this Pharisee. He was chasing the church to the ends of the earth to put an end to it. Brought to know Jesus. And that brought this kind of closing statement where in verse 31 we see, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we got to see this moment of the church of just blessing and favor and this rare moment of comfort and just things were good for a little while. And so as we dive into chapter 10, though, we're going to dive right into the midst of a scandal. A massive scandal. One that was, a controversy is so big that over the next five chapters, it's going to threaten to tear the church in two. It's going to bring worldwide mission to be threatened to be, to be brought to an end. And it's in the midst of this scandal that we, we pick up our story here. So I actually want to look at kind of the end of our text of chapter 11. If you brought your, your Bibles with you, turn with me to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And, uh, and then we're going to go back and pick up in 10. We read this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Now it's really hard for us to understand what's going on here, for us to understand the depth of this controversy and tension, because it isn't really wrapped up in tension that we experience, that we've known. We haven't experienced much of the, the tension between uncircumcised, like we were talking about the circumcision party, and that's not a party anybody really wants to go to around here. And so, but what we're missing out on is something massive, something huge. And Luke knew it. Luke, the author of, of this book of Acts, knew how deep, how impactful this controversy, this scandal was. Because if, if this doesn't happen, if Peter didn't go into and eat with these uncircumcised men, these Gentiles, then Luke, who was a Gentile himself, who was a, a Greek non-Jew, never hears the gospel, never comes to know Jesus, and never writes the book of Acts. And what's even more is that none of you here in this room either. So this is a weighty issue. And so Luke really devotes the majority of the narrative of the book of Acts, the, the longest narrative in the whole book, to this issue. And he tells it and retells it through three different points of view to just help us get a glimpse of how vital, how, how deep of an issue this was. You see, the Old Testament law stated that, that Jews had these very strict guidelines for their dietary restrictions. Jews were only able to eat certain kinds of food. In addition to that, to keep them from idolatry, to keep them from turning from God and turning to worship the, the gods of the nations around them, they were, there had laws that guided what they could and couldn't do with Gentiles. What they, they could not marry people that, fall, that, that followed a false god. They couldn't go into contract and business with people whose, whose idols of their hearts were celebrating and worshiping a false god. So they had these limitations that God gave as a loving guideline for them to bring them 
to stay and persevere and follow hard after him and ultimately to display the beauty of his glory to the foreigner, to the Gentile. But then what happened is that by the first century, most devout Jews had started adding to this custom. In a sense, what started to happen is they said, well, if if God doesn't want us to marry Gentiles, then he'll really love us if we refuse to go into their homes. They started thinking, you know, if if God doesn't want us to eat their foods, then he's going to really love us if we refuse to even sit down at a table with them. And so they started adding to what God gave as a loving call of grace to keep their hearts fixated on him and to love the nations, they started adding as a motivation to hate and to judge the nations. So much so that by the time we get to this text here in Acts, it was considered unlawful for a Jew to enter into the home of a Gentile. It was unthinkable for a Jew to share a meal with a Gentile. And so just imagine how deep that that prejudice goes when you realize that at this moment, when, when, when this was being when this action happened, that Israel was being ruled by a Gentile nation. That this foreign army actually controlled and oppressed God's people, that they blamed these this Gentile Roman army for all their suffering, all their misfortune. Their hatred was so intense, so deep, that not only did they refuse to associate with the Gentiles, but they hated and refused to associate with any Jew who did. And so it's in that context that word is spreading throughout the church that Peter, the predominant leader of this church, did the unthinkable. He he went into a Gentile's home, shared a meal with him, stayed with him, called him brother. And so as this is spreading throughout the church, this scandal is starting to take hold that the leader of their own church has betrayed and turned from God. So now if this sermon was a movie, after introducing this kind of unimaginable, shocking situation, that's when you kind of shift scenes and then the words would come across the bottom that said one week earlier to try and figure out what in the world happened that got us from everything being great, God blessing and moving, everything being comfortable and nice to all of a sudden this scandal threatening to rip the church apart. And so when we change scenes, we go back to chapter 10, verse 1, and we're at a Gentile's house in Caesarea. So look with me at chapter 10. And we're going to trace through this story. And we see a God who is at work moving and transforming the hearts of two men so radically that they're going to transform the church and and the whole shape of human history. And so what we're going to see is that God is going to be preparing Cornelius' heart, that God is preparing Peter's heart, and then God is going to use Cornelius to change Peter's heart, and that God is going to use Peter to change Cornelius' heart. And then God is going to use both of them to transform the church. So look with me. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, 
of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And so this man, Cornelius, who's a, a, he's a, a centurion in the Roman army, which is kind of a mid-level rank. He had about a hundred soldiers underneath him. He was respectable. He was influential. And yet in his time being stationed in Israel, he had heard about the God of Israel. He had heard about this, this God of the Bible. And he so was intrigued, so moved by this God, that he desired to join the Jews into worshiping him. But he had not yet, or at least was unwilling, to become a Jew himself. And so he was still an outsider. He was still a Gentile. Still a foreigner. And so as much as he desired to know this God and desired to join the Jews in worshiping him, imagine how many times he must have been rejected. How many times he must have invited a Jew to share a meal with him or to come to his house to to tell him about this God just to hear them say, absolutely not. I could never enter your home. To hear so forcefully said that if I went into your home, I couldn't worship my God. That's how dirty you are in my sight. Just to be with you would make me dirty. And yet we see, we get a glimpse of how loving God's gracious pursuit of this man is because he keeps pursuing and longing after this God, praying daily that he would come to know him. And so what we see, though, is this man who could not get a single follower of the God of the Bible to enter into his home, the God of the Bible sends an angel into his home. God sends an angel to him to say, Cornelius, Your prayers have been heard. This God that you ache for knows you and loves you and is pursuing you. And so he's told to send some of his men to to a town called Joppa, about a day's journey to the south, to get a man named Peter and to bring him up to his house and to hear what Peter has to say to him. And so then we kind of get our our next scene in the story where we're taken to see God preparing Peter. In verse 9. And so the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter is up on the, up on the rooftop. He's praying. He's, he's seeking the Lord. 
And he gets hungry, and he gets this vision of a picnic, essentially, of God laying out a picnic for him, spreading out a blanket, except instead of, like, lamb and, and beef, there's, there's ham, and there's bacon, which, praise God, and then there's, there's all these other weird things, like vultures and reptiles, and, and things that Peter never would have imagined ever eating. And then he hears this voice that says, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And in this moment, now if you know much about the Bible, if you've read through the Gospels much, you know that Peter's not been known to get many things right. I mean, he's screwed up everything. And so there's some deep irony here that in an effort of of Peter not to fail this test, he utterly fails the test. Because he's thinking, absolutely not. There's no way I'm going to deny my faith now, Lord. I know that that is not okay for me to eat. I know that that's off limits. So when he's told to rise, kill, and eat, he, he argues with the voice. And he says, by no means. A- absolutely not. I-, I would never eat something that's unclean. And I mean, really, it's easy for us to kind of just laugh at that a bit. You know, I read that and I think, God just told you to make a bacon sandwich. Like, what are you doing arguing with the voice? Like, get to work. But we have to realize is that Peter is still morally and culturally disgusted by what he sees in front of him. That even though Jesus had already declared all foods clean in in Mark 7, 19, Peter's still so offended and opposed knowing that that, that food is going to make me dirty. And so it's unimaginable. And so as he's struggling and arguing, he hears a voice, verse 15, and the voice came to him a second time and says, What God has made clean, do not call common. What God's saying to him is, Peter, I decide what is clean, not you. I decide what is clean, and what I make, I can say if it's clean or not. So don't you dare, Peter, say that something I've made is unclean. And as he's thinking about that, as he's struggling to wrap his mind around what that means, he hears a knock at the door. And at that moment, the three men that were sent out the day ahead by Cornelius reach his door, and they're looking for him. And then he hears the Spirit say to him, in verse 19, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So now Peter is in Joppa. He's, in a, he's on the rooftop of a house that's by the sea. From this rooftop, he, it's very likely he could have seen the docks of this port city. He could have seen the docks where all the ships are going in and out to all over the world. And what's amazing is that it's in those very same docks, several centuries earlier, that a man named Jonah boarded a ship to run from God because God had told him to preach a gospel of repentance and grace to Gentiles. 
prophet named Jonah heard God call to him saying, Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city of the Gentile nation that's oppressing your people. And take this word to them to repent that they may be spared. And Jonah so hated the Gentiles, so hated them for their sin and what they had done. He, he wanted God's judgment on them. He wanted God's wrath to be carried on, out on them. And so rather than running to them to proclaim a gospel of grace, Jonah runs from them and boards a, a ship at this port to go to Tarshish, to go to the ends of the earth, to get as far away from these Gentiles that God was desiring to save as he possibly could. And so it's here in Joppa, once again, that God is calling a man to preach repentance and grace to Gentiles. To preach repentance and grace to people who are far from him and who are oppressing his people. So we're drawn in in this moment of wondering, what is Peter going to do? What's he going to do? How is he going to respond? Is he going to send these men away? Is he going to run to the docks and get on a boat to the ends of the earth? What's he going to do? Is he going to argue with this voice yet again and say, by no means, Lord, I would never go to someone who is unclean. In verse 23, we get to start to see the Lord transform Peter. So verse 23, Peter invites them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had gathered together his relatives and close friends. And now again, it's so easy for us to read this text and just think, well, this is exciting. I mean, Peter's just going in to share the guy. He must just be so excited at this moment. And we, we're able to think like that because this tension and this racist struggle that's being talked about here is not one that we have our emotions and our experiences tied up in. You see, Peter had never in his life entered into the home of a Gentile. And so as he's walking through this city, this city that's in Israel, but that's named after Caesar, the king who conquered his people, He's walking through this town and he's feeling nervous. And he walks not only through the town, but then he starts walking through the Gentile area of town. This area of town where he certainly feels like he doesn't belong, where he surely feels like everybody's looking at him. Because they they probably are. It's an area of town where the the houses are a little bit bigger. The donkeys that they drive are a little bit nicer. It's a place where he's feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And as he's walking in this area and he's seeing these other soldiers, these other Roman soldiers around, his eyes probably aren't making contact. He's probably afraid of being noticed. When they ask him who he is and what he's doing there, he's saying, I, I, I was invited. This is an an area of town that's a deep divide that he's crossing just by entering in it. 
And so as he comes up to Cornelius' door, it just gets more intense. I mean, he's got to be thinking, was there any other way I could have interpreted that voice? Is there any other thing, any other way? He'd been told his whole life, Peter, you're a Jew. You're better than them. If you enter into their home, you'll be unacceptable to your God. They will make you unclean. But by God's grace, he enters in remembering and knowing that God told him that God makes things clean. So he doesn't flee to Tarshish. He walks through the door. Verse 25, it just says, when Peter entered. And in that moment, when he entered in, when he crossed that threshold, he's breaking down centuries of division, of separation, of hatred. And he walks in. And what's interesting is that when worlds collide and as people collide and cultures collide and differences get together, things get awkward. And it it gets weird here. He enters in, look with me, verse 25, and Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And in that moment, Peter's saying, what? What are you doing? Get up, get up. I'm just a man like you. I too am a man. Stand up. See, as Peter's entering this house, he's wondering, what's going to happen? What am am I doing? I've heard how messed up these these Gentiles, their idolatry is, how messed up their spirituality, how, how weird they are. He's gripped with uncertainty. And then, And then he starts to take that step in. And it gets weird. Whereas Cornelius on the other end of the spectrum has been taught his whole life as a Roman soldier to worship a man as God, to worship Caesar as God. And so within this man who this angel told him to send for and to come, he's got to be thinking, here he is. Here's my new God. Here is the one who's going to save me. Here is the one who's going who's to be my God. So Peter in fear enters in and Cornelius in uncertainty starts worshiping him. You see, the gospel calls Cornelius to cross a line that his society and his culture would not allow. The gospel calls Peter to cross a line that his society and his culture would not allow. You see, most Jews would have told Cornelius in that moment when he was worshiping him to to get up, that you were to worship no one but God alone. But only a Jew that was transformed by the gospel would be able to say, stand up, for I too am a man like you. Only a Jew that had been so gripped by God's grace and had the stronghold of, his, of a works-based salvation torn from him to find his identity and a hope in a gracious God that would save him by love, could be able to look at this Gentile in the face, pick his face up from worshiping him, help him to stand up, look him in the eye, and say, you stand. Because I'm a man just like you. I was dirty just like you. And my God made me clean. 
You see, what we find out here is that in the process of this racial and cultural reconciliation, that the gospel demands that nobody is too dirty or different or lost. No one is too far gone for you to enter into a loving relationship with them. And at the same time, no one is so holy and righteous and good that you are to bow down and to worship them. I say it like this at Veritas Drive Village all the time, but no one is too dirty to be forgiven by grace and accepted. And no one is so clean that they don't need to be forgiven by grace in order to be accepted. That's the incredible news of the gospel that levels us all before a holy God. But this isn't the way we naturally drift, is it? It isn't the way that we naturally drift towards seeing others who are unlike us, who make us uncomfortable as being just like us before God. And how often has fear, has awkwardness, has worry kept you from taking steps across those cultural, social, racial, and economic boundaries that the world builds up? How often have those things kept you from crossing those boundaries that the gospel tears down? You see, we're, we're all there together because our default isn't to pursue someone who's, who's culturally and socially and racially different than us. Our default is not to run towards people that make us uncomfortable. But we can praise God because Jesus is. is. We can praise God that Jesus does run to those who are unlike him. And we get to catch a glimpse here because he brings Peter along for the ride. So as Peter talks with Cornelius, he finds out that many people are gathered. And then verse 28, he addresses this room. And he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why have you sent for me? Peter's saying, I have long thought that I could not cross this line. And you yourselves know that this is a line I couldn't cross. But God has awakened me to a gospel that says that I cannot regard anyone as unclean. And so Cornelius then shares with him the vision that he had and why he sent for me. And then in verse 33, he says, Now therefore we are all here, get this, in the presence of God. Cornelius is saying, God's presence is here in my house. Among a room packed full of dirty Gentiles. Gentiles just like all of us in this room. And God's presence was there. God was delighted to be there. And so he says, we want to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to say. And so Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, Peter is so gripped by the depth of the gospel that he's able to say here, 
that God shows no partiality. It's so easy for us to just say, well, of course. But, but Peter's entire worldview for his entire life was built on the idea that God showed partiality. That God favored him because he was better than everyone else. Until the gospel took hold of him. And so what we see is that Peter tells this room how that could be possible, how God could be a God who would show no partiality. And what he tells them is that the reason God shows no partiality is because the only one who deserved God's partiality took our sin and was condemned as a dirty sinner in our place. Jesus, the only one who ever walked this earth, who was ever truly and fully favored by God, who deserved God's partiality, took the sin of all of us who don't so that we might be called sons and daughters of a holy God. And God uses Peter to transform Cornelius and that message that will transform anyone in this room. I don't care what you've done or where you've come from. He tells them, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace throughout, through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. But they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter's telling him this, this word that was sent to Israel was a word of good news to all the nations. Because this word was about a man named Jesus who was anointed with power, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, who did good for all the people, healing them, blessing them, serving them. But then he was put to death on the tree. Which Peter's referring to the fact that that, mean, that meant that Jesus died under the curse of God. How does one who was anointed and favored by God, who did, who did nothing but good for all those around him, die under a curse? He died under our curse. Taking a curse from us so that we might receive the favor and the partiality that only he deserved. See, he died for our curse so that we who are too dirty could be called clean, so that we who are far off in sin could be brought into the family of God. And God raised him on the third day so that we all who are in him might be raised to life with him. He goes on to tell them how they were commanded to preach this to, to every nation, to tell the world that a judgment is coming of the living and the dead, but to bear witness because everyone who believes in him 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You tell me when, when Cornelius heard that word, everyone, that wasn't the best news he had heard in his whole life. Everyone. And so it's amazing, as you can tell, this is a good sermon. It's much better than the one you're hearing right now because in the midst of the sermon, the Holy Spirit just comes down and people just get saved. They start praising God, worshiping God. God pours out His Spirit and it looks just like it did among the Jews on Pentecost. If you remember that back in chapter 2, it looks just like it did then. And God moves and saves. And, and all the people that came with Peter, all of the Jews are just in shock. In utter awe. Because they think that they just entered in. Whereas what we've gotten to see is that behind the scenes, there's been a God that's been working, preparing Peter's heart, preparing Cornelius' heart, preparing the people in this room to encounter a God who would go to them and save them. See, what we learn here is that even though most of our conversion experiences, most of our worship experiences don't look quite like this. We know that in every place that God moves to bring someone to himself, he's been stirring and working on a heart to bring them to faith. He's been preparing them. He's been preparing another person's heart to go to them in love. We see the hand of a sovereign God moving his church And so Peter, seeing them believe and receive the Holy Spirit, he reasons that if God has accepted them, so must the church. He says, if God has baptized them, how dare we not? And so he tells them to be baptized, and they baptize, and and then they invite Peter to stay with them. And Peter stays. Peter stays in in their house. He lives with them. He eats with them. He lives life with them. And so what we see is that Peter didn't run from God who was offering his grace to sinners, and he he didn't merely regretfully meet Cornelius on a neutral ground to simply tell Cornelius how God was reconciling him to himself. Peter entered in. He entered into a relationship. You see, as the gospel compels us to tell people what Jesus did to reconcile them to God, it also compels us to show them what we will do to reconcile ourselves to them. The gospel that compels us to declare the extent God went to to reconcile broken sinners to himself is the same gospel that compels it. We live in light of it to reconcile ourselves, to lovingly pursue a broken and hurting world. You see, it's because Peter came to know that he was saved by grace. He was able to join with God in transforming Cornelius by that same grace. Peter believed the gospel that he was telling this room. 
He realized that as he told them what God did to bring them to himself, Peter now is wrapped up in that mission. So he has to give himself as well. He has to cross those lines that society and culture tells us can't be crossed. And he crosses them in love. You see, Peter couldn't just help them set up a separate Gentile church on the other side of town. No matter how much practical, strategic sense that might have made. No matter how much more comfortable that would have made their worship gatherings. You see, Peter recognizes that if God had sent his spirit to live in them, how could I refuse to live with them? If God was willing to call Cornelius his son, how dare I refuse to call him my brother? And so it's at this moment where we catch up to our opening scene and we see that the word had gotten out and the scandal has broken. And so we're going to close by just seeing how the Lord moves through this to transform his church. See, as Peter's being accused and criticized of going in and eating with these Gentiles, with these uncircumcised men, Peter began explaining what happened. Tells them about praying on the rooftop in the vision. Tells them about the men being sent. Tells them about how delicious bacon is. I mean, probably. He he tells them about preaching the gospel to them. He tells them about God sending his spirit and believing. He tells them, and then he asks them this question. He says, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in his way? And then what we see in verse 18 the church is starting to be transformed. They stopped criticizing and start worshiping. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to faith. And what's amazing is that the church never looks the same. The church never looks the same again. This passage closes with praise rather than condemnation. Now, this issue is, like I said earlier, is this far from settled. This is going to struggle and, and, and wage war in the church for the next five chapters as they, as they struggle with the reality of not just seeing a few Gentiles that wanted to live and talk and act like them, a few of them enter into their church and kind of adopt their culture and their way of doing things. And when they start to see that the, the whole center of the weight of the church throughout the world becomes predominantly Gentile, and not just these good Gentiles like Cornelius, but these Gentiles are brought out of sexual depravity and idolatry and and, and pagan worship and addiction. And as this church starts to look like this beautiful mess where God calls things that were once dirty clean. Listen to Ephesians 2.13. Now in Christ, Jesus 
you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace and he has made us one. So what we see is that throughout all of this, a scandalous gospel is preserved. We see this gospel that's so scandalous that it would unite things that the world says must be separated. And this mission continues to the ends of the earth to drive Christians out of safety, out of security, out of comfort, and into a pursuit of those that Jesus died to save. And what we see is that we are a part of the church that's wrapped up in that same mission. So that this evening, if, if you are not yet a believer, if you are, are, are in a place that Cornelius was, being intrigued by this God, you can know that he is preparing your heart and he is telling you the way of life. And if you're a Christian, you can know that he's preparing your heart to be sent in love into those lives. Because what we see is that the church is called to be a place where God is flexing his power. Where God displays the strength of his grace by uniting in Christ people who have no other worldly reason of being together. See, that's the apologetic, that's the proof of the power of the gospel. That if Jesus didn't die on the cross, the church would not make sense. And so it proclaims to a world that makes a great deal of tolerance. Because apart from Christ, the only thing you could, be, you could hope to do would be to tolerate those who are different than you. Whereas in Christ, you're called to go to them in love. See, what else do you think he meant when Jesus said that they will know you are my people by your love for one another? And just presupposes a love that does not make sense in the world's eyes. It presupposes a love that would bring together people that the world could not ever see together. And that's what the church is going to be for eternity. So as we pray, close your eyes with me and listen to this promise from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Church, this is what we are looking forward to. This is what we will be for eternity. And this is what the gospel invites us in to making our reality. We hear this. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heavenly Father, would you make that a reality in our church? Would you stir our hearts to hope in that, Lord? Would you stir us towards faith right now? Would you stir us to find the beauty of the gospel so 
unavoidably powerful that we could rejoice in knowing that the only one who who was truly favored, the only one who was truly righteous, the only one who was truly you were partial towards was condemned for us so that you might call us your own. And Lord, would you transform us as, as a church to reach into every pocket of this city and proclaim a gospel that reconciles. Amen.